Hello there. Welcome to the Inking Out Loud podcast. Welcome back, I should say. I'm your host, Rob Santos, and I'm joined, as I always am, by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? And today, Drew and I are covering book eight of The Dresden Files by Jim Butcher, Proven Guilty. A reminder before we get going that if you are into our content and you'd like to get access to, say, bonus episodes or recommend books for us to cover or even read our own short fiction pieces, consider checking us out, Inking Out Loud, on either our Patreon page or our profile on uh, Coffee. that is K-O-F-I, where you can choose to either support us on a monthly basis or even just do a one-time donation. It's up to you. As for the Dresden Files, Drew, we're on book eight now, and book eight was... Oh, it was interesting, to say the least. So, Drew, yeah. you know what to do by now, my guy. Let's hear a recap. Absolutely. At the start of Proven Guilty, we find Harry attending to his duties as a warden for the White Council, being part of an execution of a young man who broke the laws of magic. Harry feels guilty about this, even as he knows the kid was irredeemable. But before Harry can get too comfortable with this dilemma, he's given the task of finding out what's going on with the Summer Court, and is also given a warning by the gatekeeper. Black magic is once again afoot in Chicago. Harry heads home to do some magical research with his newly built miniature simulacrum of Chicago, but gets interrupted by a phone call. It's none other than Molly Carpenter, and she needs Harry to post bail for her boyfriend. Harry arrives at the police station to find a much-changed Molly, complete with dyed hair, tattoos, and piercings. From there, events swing into action quickly. Molly and her boyfriend Nelson are on the staff of SplatterCon, a local horror movie convention, and Nelson was jailed because he was on the spot of a mystical attack at the convention. Harry investigates and quickly discovers that the attacks are being done by phobophages, creatures of the never-never who feed on fear. Another attack happens while he's there, and Molly's friend Rosie is badly hurt. Harry determines that his best course of action is to stop the practitioner who's summoning the creatures. He also meets with Fix and Lily and Maeve, Learning, about, learning that the Winter Queen Mab is unstable, and the Summer Court can't help the wizards without opening themselves up to attack by Mab. Harry quickly teams up with Murphy to protect the convention, establishing a plan to turn the next phobophages against whomever summons them. During all this, Harry and Murphy chat about their interests together, and decide that it's not a good idea for them to get involved. When the next attack happens, Harry launches his strike and heads out of the hotel, but is attacked and captured by Thomas's cousin, Madrigal Wraith. Harry manages to escape, but they're attacked by a much more powerful phobophage, which appears as the Scarecrow. They manage to fight it off and drive away, but Harry tracks the others back to the Carpenter's house, where he finds that Molly has been taken to the Never Never. With the help of Charity and some timely advice, Harry tracks Molly to Arctus Tor, the Heart of Winter. He, Murphy, Charity, and Thomas attack the fortress, while Lily and Fix hold a portal open back to the real world. They defeat the Scarecrow and save Molly, having a quick chat with Winter's captives Leah and Lloyd. Harry uses the power of Summer in the heart of Winter, and that attracts all the forces of Winter to the fortress. Harry and crew escape, and the withdrawal of Winter's forces allows the Summer Court to come to the aid of the embattled White Council. Meanwhile, Harry confronts Molly about her use of magic, revealing that she broke one of the laws and will be tried by the Council. He brings her in of her own free will, defending her and offering to train her. With the help of Lily and the timely arrival, arrival of Ebenezer and the rest of the Wardens, Harry wins his case. Harry begins his education of Molly, spurning her advances and forcing her to return home and go back to school. The book ends with a portentous meeting between Harry and Ebenezer, as they realize they're fighting against an organized, powerful new foe. 
Harry dubs them the Black Council, and he finally makes amends with his old mentor. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what do you think of this book? I didn't like it as much as the last one. Interesting. But it was still a great book. I don't think any of these have been bad books, objectively speaking, but I, st- I still definitely <laughs> very much enjoyed it. How about you? I think this is my favorite. It's close between this and um, Deadbeat. Uh, I think these last okay. two have been on a, a completely different level for the series. Uh, Butcher has clearly just gone all in on the epic fantasy now. Uh, the the meta narrative is in full force, and and we're we're really getting to see the world open up and become interconnected. And at the end of this, of course, you know we we see how he ties it back where Harry's like, you know, each of these episodic events from the prior books are all tied together. And, Mm -hmm. uh, but most importantly, and I'm not going to ever accuse any of these books uh, as being character driven because they're not, (laughs) but there was an awful lot of character development in this book. And I loved that. That, Yeah, there was like, if, if I come down on on the side of this book is better than Deadbeat, it's going to be because of the strength of the characters. You're thinking of Charity, aren't you? I'm thinking of Charity. I'm thinking of Molly. Yes. I'm thinking of Lily and Fix. I'm thinking of uh, Harry himself. There's so much going on. But yeah, uh, Harry's relationships with the Carpenters in this book, just outstanding. Well, yeah. For sure, for sure, we are still getting darker too. Like the, for me, it's the nature of the of these spiritual wounds that can be left by these creatures and how they're leaving them on these innocent people. Like this, exploring that whole avenue, it's it terrifies me. Molly is is messing around with mind altering magic. We have we have miscarriage and drug abuse weighed against it. We have Molly exploring her own coming of age in uncomfortable ways with the, the situations we're finding ourselves in are more dire. That scene, when when Harry first rolls up to the carpenter's house and he just sees devastation, you know, just broken furniture and, and glass and, and, and blood everywhere. The sheer amount of horror that Butcher managed to paint with this scene by by using our past few books familiarity with, with the carpenter family just gave that so much weight. Like, it, it, this book for me was so much darker and heavier than even the last books have been. And I really enjoyed it. It makes me wonder, though, what we have left with so many books to go. Considering like, we're, how many we're halfway we through the yeah. uh, currently published offerings. Uh, but yeah, I, I do agree. I think this book is is darker. Uh, it, and it, it comes from the character work. It, things matter more when you care about the characters you know two different authors could write the same scene and one scene could be completely devoid of tension if they don't establish their characters as well and Mm. at this point butcher is now allowing himself to work on developing these characters instead of just having them more or less stay the same and do like you know a a flavor of the week adventure he's like what do you think of having Sorry, of having the, the climax as early as it was. Once again, this I think it's the earliest one yet. It was like 75% of the way through the book. We were in the in the heart of Arctis Tor, and everything that followed that was kind of denouement, was was dealing with the fallout. What did you think of that? I loved it. Yeah? Uh, I know you're a fan of this kind of thing. Yeah, the 
because it was all of that character development, like I cared more about what it was doing inside of Harry and, and how Molly was going to change and react and how Charity is going to change and react to these events than I did about, you know, a, another cool fight scene, you know? Uh, oh. I was surprised um, at the length, especially that last chapter's huge. Yeah, like, yeah. I, I did the audiobook again. That last chapter is suddenly over an hour. Yeah, I was like, "What?" It was a solid chunk of the book. Yeah, in my ebook version of it, it was like nearly fifty pages long. Just that one chapter. I was like, "Man, this is some, uh, you know, Divine Cities level chapter length mm. going on here." Uh. I'll bring up Bennett, why don't you? Yeah, like... Every time I hear Bennett, I want to read Bennett. <laughs> I mean, that was a similar thing he did with the Divine Cities, where each of those books had a really long final chapter, uh, like a big denouement. And and that was definitely the case here. Yeah, I, I, well, I'm I remembering the end of City of Blades now, and I'm just like, mm. I still want to tear up at it. So anyway, we're, yeah. we're still... We're, <laughs> we're on Dresden. Um, even the language, the heavy language here, I love it. I mean, anyone who knows me personally knows that I am the last person on Earth to mind an excess of curse words, but I, I can still appreciate how much weight Butcher is giving his occasional F-bombs by back by holding off so much, like, mm -hmm. all of the time. It's another one of those stylistic things that just kind of fades into the tapestry after a while. You stop noticing it until it reminds you again. There it is. It's so much funnier for it. Like, I don't, I don't know about you, Drew, but when we were covering Stover, Acts of Cain, mm -hmm. years ago on this very podcast... As much as I glowed about Stover's gift with cursing, it's and we have again about uh, with with Scott Lynch, I still wasn't laughing at the cursing itself. I was laughing about the applications of that right. cursing. In Dresden, it's a little different. It's a little more childish and giddy for me personally. I am laughing at the cursing itself because it's only happening when Harry is sufficiently startled or sufficiently angry. It really got me good in chapter seven, about five minutes in. Harry's wrapping up his meditation. He's completely serene and silent. I think he's about to do his first test on mini Chicago. And then the fucking phone rang about a foot from my ear. <laughs> Damn it, I screamed with frustration. Damn it, damn it, damn it. Yeah. Moments like that, just pure human frustration, helpless frustration, they're still entertaining to me. You could I would really love to see feel that. like like I was frustrated in that moment. You know, <laughs> yeah. the, that was some that was some really good emotional writing. That uh, was four hours of work because yeah. of a phone call. Oof. Do you ever have do you have memories of, of being a, a younger one, Drew, and using dial up internet? And then being in the middle oh, of something important yeah. when somebody calls you and then your just internet went out. Yep. And then you just had to deal with losing whatever that was because your aunt wants to call your mother for whatever reason. Yeah, that's... Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. We were alive then. Look at us, wise in our years, you and oh, I. Drew. I do not miss dial-up. Wow. <laughs> anyway, yeah, it, overall, I mean, we have pretty much covered all of my style points, but I did genuinely enjoy it coming out of it i would want to give it like a 9.0 maybe like an 8.8 9.0 out of 10 yeah if i were to, if i were to give it a rating which i don't do often we, we we almost never actually give like quantifiable ratings to books here yeah not not often um but i'd probably fall somewhere in that like 8 to 8.5 range um it, it's it, it was definitely a more than solid book uh and i'm and i'm glad i i like the stylistic and thematic changes that we're seeing through the middle part of this series. 
Mm. I was a, yeah. a little bit frustrated, you know, with some of the early, um, the early books, uh, the lack of character development, the, uh, the way Butcher was sort of leaning into a few tropes that I, and, and literary devices that I didn't love. And he seems to be mostly moving past that now, um, as he's adjusting essentially the genre of the series going from, you know, an urban fantasy detective noir to a full blown epic fantasy. Mm. Uh, I, I'm finding, I appreciate his stylistic flares a little more. Uh, certainly the, the actual prose has improved a lot. It's, it's much cleaner, much smoother. I don't find myself getting jarred out of the, the flow the way I did in the early books. There, there were like maybe one or two lines in this whole book. Like there was one, there was one sentence uh, near the end when they're all like the all the carpenters are asleep in the you know in the church, and Harry's it's right before Harry and Molly have their little walk, um, and the soul gaze. Uh, and Harry looks over at at the carpenters and he describes how they've it's like they've all fallen asleep and they're all. And, and they had all followed, like, he he used rhyming words multiple times in the sentence. Did like he? Like, the same, like, fallen and all multiple times. And I was like, this is, this is awkward. But, uh, but, but it wasn't, like, metered. It wasn't poetic where, where it would have felt deliberate. Like, somebody, you know, like Patrick Rothfuss might have written where it's like, okay, uh-huh. this is a... Uh, there's a rhythm, an ebb and flow to the sentence, and these rhyming or slant rhymed words hit beats. Uh, that wasn't the case. But like, that's one sentence in the whole book. You know, like uh, when I was annoyed and and struggling with things constantly in the earlier books. Uh, now it's like, all right, yeah, this this guy is has dramatically improved his craft. Uh, eight books in, yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, there there were there were moments that I just felt chills. There was one that I actually meant to write down, and I totally forgot to write it down until you brought this up about the about the prose. There was a little diatribe that Lashiel had about witnessing the uh, how old she was, about witnessing the birth of creation and and mortals and mm, stuff like mm-hmm. that. And I was like, that is some proper like universe building, meta building stuff right there. That was cool. That's the stuff I want more of, and I love that we're probably going to get more of that kind of. It's yeah. I mean, it definitely feels. Um, more exploratory, but still uh, comfortable. I like it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and then my other stylistic point is uh, how happy I am with some of the treatment of sex in this book versus especially in Blood Rites. Um, it, it didn't... Was there sex in Blood Rites or was there just a porn stage or just like a porn set? Just, I'm, I'm talking about the his narrative use of sex. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. Here, it doesn't have that like icky leering feel the way it did in in earlier books. Come on. And no, I still disagree with that. Ooh, I mean, I, 
come on. Okay, there was there was one moment where he used Harry used the word intriguing when he was thinking about where else Molly had piercings that he couldn't see, and I was like, right. There was a little a little bit of ick. I mean, it's not like unforgivable. But that's in service to character development, where it was just gratuitous earlier in the series. Uh, and and I'll get to this much more in, in the actual character okay, discussion, but, like... Because it's still, like, a comment on Molly, in this case. Right, and, and it's it's an internal, book-long conflict that Harry has. Like, it, there's, an, there's a through line of the book, you know, where Harry has to deal with the fact that Molly is growing up and is clearly interested in him, you know, like, he, he has to draw his his lines. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure we're going to talk a, a little bit later about a scene that you, you described as probably controversial uh, at the mm-hmm. end of the book. Yeah. But, yeah. But, like, it, it just felt to me... M- more purposeful and less like, ooh, let's let's titillate our readers with with uh you know boobs and ass everywhere. Like, uh, there was there was meaning to the the encounters. The only time that I was I, I kind of rolled my eyes was when Charity was like gearing up for battle and and Harry's like talking about how how great she looks in a sports bra and. You know, and I was like, See, I was totally, yeah. I mean, but I was fine with that. But that's, you know, that was like that charity one <laughs> time in the book that's that I, me. that I rolled my eyes again. We're uh. like earlier in the series. I was constantly rolling my eyes at this stuff. So that's another big step up. And it's a big part of why I've liked these last two books so much more. Yeah. Well, let's, let's just discuss the big reasons that we liked it. Unless you have no other, uh, st- do you have any other style points? No, before no, we go into that, our was, characters? Uh, that was my last one. Perfect. All right. So let's get into Harry then. Yeah. Harry Dresden. Just just Harry Dresden. There's so many feelings about Harry Dresden I have, and I don't know how to compartmentalize them. He's still gnarly. He's still gritty, sarcastic, clever, badass wizard Harry Dresden. A ton of fun to read. Excellent vehicle for the plot. Couple of iffy things. We like, we just went over them. But overall, I can appreciate... I'm coming to appreciate the cringe with the cool factor. Um it's it's all of this together still even with the flaws whether or not you can still stomach carry as a character i still think he's a, he's a lot of fun it it still makes him more authentic more organic more human he's still relatable in his flaws or just the types of flaws he has maybe i found this to be especially poignant with murphy and i'll be getting into that later believe me um <clears throat> his choices though still frustrate me sometimes and it's stu- it's stupid i pro- it is stupid this whole blase insistence um about just like being open with his wizard identity thing but never proving it like he's mm-hmm. he's open about being wizard but <clears throat> anytime anyone openly doubts him he's just like well yeah you know he walks away um mm-hmm. it, it starts to frustrate me in chapter 13 harry's talking to green after the the first the detective green he's, he's the first encounter with a phobophage and green is grilling him he goes and then what and harry's like well then i hit the guy I hit him how I used magic. I blew him 30 feet down the aisle through the projector and the movie screen. And Green, obviously, is going to stare at him and just press X to doubt. And even when he <laughs> sees the fact, like, states the facts as he sees them, Harry's just like, you know, whatever makes you feel better, little guy. You know, he's just so con- he's condescending about it, too. I just like, yeah. or Harry, 
maybe you could stop being a smarmy dick for long <laughs> enough just to give the guy who's trying to stop the murders in his own way a little demonstration of what you can do. Or, or would the effort that it takes other people to pass wind, would that be too much for you to exert right now just to, like, throw a chair around <laughs> so that you can just be a condescending asshat? Right. It, sometimes he frustrated me. I didn't realize I just grilled Harry for a whole minute there. I'm still <laughs> far more, I'm still much bigger of a fan than I than I am frustrated by it. Yeah. But some specific moments I'll go off on rants about. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I liked Harry the most in this book out of any of them so far. And it goes back to... You know, one of my favorite scenes in an earlier book was when Harry and Molly were like talking in the treehouse, and and uh, and Harry and his interactions with oh, the yeah. archive. And I've talked about how I think Harry's at his best when he's being a father figure, and this book was full of that. So I, I like seeing Harry get to you know put that side of himself center stage. Yeah. And having to, to to confront that that kind of reality too, with a few of his conversations with Murphy, you know, in the elevator in particular, I think, mm-hmm. um, the idea of being a father, you know, I mean, yep. we saw it kind of in action with Billy and 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 the other the werewolves, but he, it's not entirely that way. It's still he's still kind of like a friend of theirs. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and and it like that was a key part of his character development with them was going from that like mentor figure that they look up to to being actual friends with them and you know him deciding yeah. to go yeah, yeah i'm gonna hang out as just another one of them and and play D and now it's like yeah he's going to their weddings and and you know he's much more of a casual friend of theirs That's rather right. than somebody that they're like uh in awe of the way it started off yeah um but but that's a, a different a different dynamic, a different character arc that he's going through with Molly. It is. You know. And I appreciate that it's different. Where he's becoming that figure that she needs to be in awe of and being less buddy-buddy, someone that she can, she feels like she can use uh, in in whatever way, and, and someone instead that she needs to respect and learn from. Yeah. And speaking of respect for Harry Dresden, I, 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 I love the reputation that Harry's built, or I should say cultivated for himself. Like, this was, this was all over this book. It was manifest in the elevator with, with Crane and Toady, I think his name was, when they, when they meet Murphy, and then they hear Harry introduce himself. Oh, oh my Glau. god, that reaction. Yeah. Glau. Why did I call him Toady? Maybe I maybe I wrote down the Toady. Oh, you know what? My phone probably automatically corrected. Yeah. That's probably what it was. <laughs> anyway, that's a really bad autocorrect. Wow. Uh, it was a tad satisfying to me. Glau. That's right, because I remembered it was like Glauer. Um, I've got no problem admitting I, I saw that reaction. Now I kind of got a stupid teenage dumbass grin on my face like, yeah, that's right. I, what, Harry's got some street cred. I'll, I have to give him that. It's really fun to watch. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I like it when Harry admits to himself what he is and and wields his authority yeah um even at the end of the book where he's like i've become a politician and you know what i'm okay with that no you know harry at the beginning of the series would have hated that but that shows Mm. like finally harry is growing he is changing as a character and improving himself yeah and but and and he's he's managing to do that 
while still making me laugh in the same exact ways that he was uh, at times from the first books. Like his one-liners are still mad. They're still just gems all the time. Uh, when they're talking about Mouse at one point, he, you know, somebody tells him he looks like a Caucasian. Harry's like, impossible. He has rhythm and he can dance. I love it. Uh, I love it. Well, I'm glad you like it because those fall flat for me. No, you don't no, like them? Yeah. Ah, the, well, okay. okay. The, the thing that did make me laugh was when I realized, when I like put two and two together and realized what the jug of ice water on the mantle was going to be for. Yeah, yeah. And then he just dumps that out on her. I was like, yep, that's uh, that's <laughs> it. You know, <laughs> like... That's, uh, that's Chekhov's ice cube uh, filled <laughs> jug there. My favorite, I think my favorite, would, would have to be, of course, it's going to be an iconic Harry Dresden line, especially because it's coming at the end of the book, so close to the end of the book. Uh, when, when he's talking, I think it was to Michael, who, who told him, you know, you could set aside your power, you can walk away from Last Shell. He goes, what do you mean set aside my power? Go, Michael's like, walk away from your magic. Forsake it. Forever. F*** that. Yeah. And I, I appreciated <laughs> how the scene, like, ended there. Where yeah. it just it just goes to the next paragraph where he's, he's like, we got out of the car, or you know, you know the the conversation continued from there, but well, you're supposed to infer that at least, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but for the narrative impact of that, you know, yeah, that moment, it's like, oh yeah, it's like that's the last part of the conversation that was important enough to recount. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah I get you. I get you. Um, Harry's still still Harry Dresden. Yeah. And now, mostly likable. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Uh, do you have any other notes on Harry? No, we have covered everything I have to okay. say at this point. So let's let's bridge Harry to Molly. Okay, and good. let's talk about okay. the scene at the end of the book. Yeah. Okay. What did you like? How did you feel about that scene with Molly coming out of the shower? And. <laughs> It was like before you see a car accident and time slows down a little bit. Everything goes, and you're like, no, 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 <laughs> no. It was, um, it was, I, I was kind of scared because I thought there was something wrong. I thought she was being possessed. I thought there was, maybe this was a dream and Harry's being tortured by Lashiel. I, huh. I didn't see the ice coming until it was introduced. Huh. And then I laughed at the audacity of it. But I knew, and I texted you after that, because you had said you were like, like, like the 40% mark, and I was like, okay, um, just going to be a scene that's just potentially controversial, and I had to, th- you know, I had to spend some time thinking about it, but I'm, I'm totally fine with it, uh, with context, seeing the joke. Yeah, I mean, okay honestly, I think it, uh, you know, it probably is controversial, I'll, I'll have to check, you know, w- with some of the... Uh, people who are a little more plugged into the Dresden community than I am, because mm-hmm. obviously I haven't been part of any you know, conversations. I'm not in any message boards or, or groups or anything. I haven't like been that. able to yet. Yeah. Um, but I could definitely see this being something that that some people are like, oh, I don't know about this. Like having having an underage girl get naked and come on to him. Um, that's that's not exactly the kind of scene you get in a lot of fantasy yeah so, i mean i've decided i'm I'm just yeah. sorry go ahead like i thought you were especially couched in in this sort of dynamic where where it it's like extra problematic because he is this 
person of authority and she is in a, an extremely vulnerable situation where yeah. like it would it would be so easy for a worse man to take complete advantage and be like, "Yep, you're going to live with me." And and I'm going to use you for sex because you're too young and naive to realize what this attraction is and why yeah. it's there. And instead Harry defuses the situation, sits down and explains to her, this is what's going on. I'm not going to be party to this. He sets the ground I... rules for their relationship. You, you do what I say when I say this is deadly serious. This is not something we can mess around with. This is not something I'm interested in getting into with you. Like, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to be bothered by the whole lake factor anymore. Dresden is, I've decided Dresden's going to cross some uncomfortable lines, and I'm okay with it. Like, I think a lot of my problem previously up, up until this point, especially because earlier we, we had a, a, another scene that I talked about, I think it was in Blood Rites, uh, where a lot of our listeners must have been laughing when I said I was about uncomfortable about Molly in that book. Um <laughs> I think a lot of the problem here is the fact that lines, the lines between what is okay to laugh at, what's not okay to laugh at, that, that line is constantly being blurred by multiple things. Number one, the fact that times change, jokes change. But even the fact that people in that time can't agree where that line should be. I mean, this, we are going to call a spade a spade here. Molly's a 17-year-old girl. Mm -hmm. Talking about a 17-year-old girl that way, it's a bigger deal in North America than I would imagine it is in, for example, like most of Europe, where I don't think it would even be a notable point amongst everything else. All in all, I'm okay with it. Yeah, I didn't have a problem with the scene. Yeah. As long as there's there's appropriate context, it doesn't come off as like something that's just shoehorned in there. If it's got like context, or if it yeah. drives the plot for the actual book itself or the characters even, as long as it has a use, I'm okay with it. Yeah. Um But but I can Molly also navigate us Yeah, out of that minefield of discussion by saying she's just a hot mess, that poor thing though, isn't she? Yeah, like, she is. Teenage years are rough, man. I, can, I, I imagine they're particularly rough with a pair of overbearing parents, particularly on the part of Charity. I was actually really frustrated with Charity for the first half of this book. Um, Molly resonated a lot with me a bit in this one. Maybe that's another reason why I was kind of okay with this like, exploration of her coming-of-age character. Like, I, I don't talk about it too much. I really haven't needed to, but I've, I'm pretty sure I've spoken to you about it, Drew. I had a really rough relationship with my mother when I was in my teenage years. Um, a lot of it was over more or less the same reasons too, like between simply like walking out or being kicked out. Sometimes I spent a lot of time between like 12 and 17 living with my dad, for example. Um, I talk about it now, of course, because I'm, I'm 29. I've, I have amazing relationships with all of my parents. I have had all through my twenties, but I still can remember those times mm -hmm. and it shaped me in some of my very impressionable years. I had a lot of surreal contradictory emotions when I got to the part, you know, with Molly, when Harry's trying to to, to make her see sense in the beginning saying, you know, you should try and make it work. And Molly's just adamant. She's saying, I, I'm not going back there. It just wouldn't work. And you don't understand. The adult part of me reads that. And I want to tell this stupid teenager that this is all temporary. And the life and the relationship you have, interpersonal relationships, are going to be worth so much more to you over the course of your whole life than these next few years are going to hurt. Mm -hmm. But the part of me that lived it completely understands. And doesn't blame her at all. Sure. And so, so I was really, I'm, I'm all over the place about Molly at this book. She did resonate with me and she was an amazing character. Yeah, I I thought she was the strongest part of this book. Uh, 
Uh, for me, that was Charity. Really, but she's really, a, she's yeah, definitely Charity's awesome as well. Uh, yeah, she's right there. Um, and and like this next point kind of touches on that too, where I'm glad that the family issues the Carpenters had, uh, the mm-hmm. the rebellious streak in Molly, weren't just explained away as like, oh, like she's got a couple of overbearing parents that butcher took the time to use that conflict to build charity's character out yeah and and show that there is a deeper conflict causing this and uh i mean that was absolutely fantastic work yeah yeah the relationship with one another presents ways in which both of them can grow on their mm-hmm. own I mean, this is some this is some excellent stuff just from a an objective standpoint. If I can make such a call, a hundred and forty some odd episodes into talking about this kind of thing, yeah, vast improvement in character work over yeah. the early books. The, the, yep. the first couple books, brand new author Jim Butcher uh, couldn't have pulled this sort of character dynamicism off. There are a lot of authors that never get there. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> you know? For sure. Some who don't need to. I'm not going to say that everyone needs to either. I don't want to come off like... <laughs> but I think it's it's making this series much, much stronger than it could have been otherwise. It is. It is. Yeah. It's, it's for reasons like this, and I'm going to be recommending the Dresden Files. Of reasons like this amongst many other things. But, yeah. yeah. Um, Want to just were, talk about Charity? Yeah. Were you surprised about her background? Um. Yes, and I didn't like that I was surprised about it. Not that I think it doesn't fit her or it can't have happened. It just felt like I um I went from love from hating her so much to to loving her a lot. But I don't know about the reasoning for it. It just seems like it kind of came from nowhere. That it feels to me like perhaps Butcher got to one point where he's like, you know what? I never specifically said that she grew up soft. I'm just gonna on the spot invent this whole background that she's had. It felt kind of like hand wavy, but it's cool and it's far more cool than it felt hand wavy it it did surprise me i'm just bringing that up to ask or to explain since you asked if it surprised me it definitely did surprise me okay yeah but it was cool really cool it it felt so inevitable to me when she started talking i was like of course this is what happened of of course she's a magic user of course she knows how to fight of course she's got a you know a trunk full of armor and weapons like uh, it just made sense it, it, it was I love one how, of those very natural feeling story progressions. I love how it tied back to her feelings about Harry and how much it really explained and how much of my frustration was finally uh, neutralized when I, when, I, when I realized, okay, I just needed that little bit of extra context to realize what kind of threat she sees in Harry upon her children, with Molly's life in particular, you know? Mm-hmm. And Michael, too, yeah. I mean, we, we kind of got a hint of that before, but we didn't really understand where it came from. Right. Or that we didn't know that she understood where it came from. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it was cool. It, it was unexpected. I really kind of wish it had been maybe foreshadowed a little bit. Maybe I missed it. Maybe it was, actually. I'm not going to say that, actually. I'm going to wait until I do a reread to make that call. But it's still cool. I liked it. And Charity was the strongest character in this book for me because she had some seriously uh, inspiring moments that I'll be talking about later. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, do you have any other character notes? Thomas. Nice. Just just a tiny bit about Thomas. Um, 
uh, their their chemistry, Thomas and, and Harry still. I just it's it's wonderful. I love this this moment of Harry talking to Murphy uh, uh briefly about Thomas. Um what he's, he's telling Murphy like I don't know. I wish he'd talk to me, but ever since last fall, he's just kept me at arm's length. She looks at him she's like, "Have you asked him?" I eyed her. No. Why not? It isn't done that way. <laughs> Murphy's just flabbergasted. Like, why not? Because guys don't do it like that. Like, he's kind of got a point. I wouldn't... I, I would find it hard to come out and talk. I mean, not to my, my brother, actual brother, but my best friend. Maybe, you know, a little bit. There's a little bit of that macho uh, awkwardness there that does get explored a little bit with Harry and Thomas. But they're still so good for one another. And Thomas is just pure fun at this point. Like, yeah. Uh, uh, when he when when he's introduced to Charity and Charity just looks at him and Thomas is like this is Thomas, he's more dangerous than he looks and Thomas just goes I have a black belt. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's just, it's great. It's good stuff. I love it. Yeah, and Charity sees right oh. through him. She's like, Yeah, you're that white court vampire. <laughs> you're that guy. Yeah. Um, I'm surprised. I totally forgot a, lot, a huge part of my my character points here was always all on Murphy. Is, we we almost got Murphy and Dresden in this book, and then it didn't happen. Were you were we just gonna? Yeah, glance over that. I was I was waiting for you to bring oh, that up. Okay, I, I thought okay. I was leading you to that, and then you started talking okay. about Thomas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Uh, I saw a big chunk of character here, and I thought that was Harry. That, that was Murphy. Um, okay, so I I'm torn. I mean, I am torn. On one hand, I spent the last seven episodes of the Dresden Files explaining how much I love Karen Murphy. On the other hand, she broke my heart in this one, and I wasn't ready. <laughs> I'm angry about it. Not at her. I'm angry at Butcher, and I'll explain. So, Harry and Murphy's been teased for quite a bit, for, for a long time now. And I understood the reasons, assuming that it would happen at all, that it was going to have to wait. I mean, if there's going to be, like, 20 books, that if 20 books are the space that Butcher's giving himself, more or less, then, yeah, okay, making it wait could give it more weight, make it more exciting. But right when, after seven books, I... I, I finally saw it start to happen. Then it was taken away from me. And I'm not lying when I said I almost stopped the book right there. I almost stopped the book right there. After Murphy walked out of that elevator and I considered how much finality was in her words, I seriously considered, even if it, like for the space of like one second, I, I considered simply not finishing the book. That's how invested I was or, or huh. am. I don't, I don't know if I still am in the oh, Harry Murphy dude, it's relationship. it's definitely going to happen. Well... Okay, so I get that a lot of a lot of listeners are probably <laughs> having tons of future knowledge of the series. They want to yell at me right now. I hear you guys. I do, because we're not even halfway through the series yet. Yeah. Clearly, okay, I guess we kind of are halfway. Where anything could happen. I get that there's definitely a gravity to what Murphy said. You're a good man, Harry, but you can't be what I need either. I wrote that down word for word. I also get that it's not technically hopeless because people can change quite a bit in like 12, 13 more books. But the point I'm trying to get across is even if Harry and Murphy do still end up together in the future. I f***ing hate that Butcher teased me so much, built it up so perfectly, built it up excitingly in books four and six, I think, in particular. And then to start to do so here, only to hit me with a brick wall right when we got to it. Like, you read the scene so differently than I did. This is hilarious. Like, I saw this entire scene and, and really their relationship throughout this book as a clear green light for their relationship going forward that this is that, this is simply them going about building a relationship in a healthy way uh, so i highlighted one bit where he says maybe you're thinking about this too much 
Logic and reason and planning for the future. What's in your heart don't doesn't need that. And she replies, I used to think that too, but I was wrong. Love isn't all you need. And I don't yeah, I don't see us together. Like, yeah, but that's of course her lying to herself, as we find out at the end of the book. But but that line, love isn't all you need, is true. The idea that like like if you if you dive into a relationship on uh like just the feeling in your heart and ignoring logic and reason, that's a recipe for a disaster of a relationship because people change, emotions change, yeah. infatuation goes away. And I mean, this is one of the things that I've held on to. One of the biggest things from you know when Lauren and I were preparing to get married and going through pre-marriage counseling. And it was the idea that love is a choice. Love is not a feeling. Love is a choice. Infatuation is a feeling. I feel like people would argue with that. I won't argue with that, but I feel like people would argue with that. Because people change. If you're gonna if you're gonna make your relationship work as you change, as you grow up, Mm-hmm. You have to make that choice to continue loving this person, even if they're not the same exact person they were when you got married. And Murphy knows this. Murphy has been through this. Harry hasn't. And and so I think all of this stuff with them is this great setup to a truly healthy relationship, which Harry and Susan didn't have because their relationship was built so much on just like, raw attraction and uh you know yeah and so i and then especially once you get thomas coming in and he's like look i talked to her i needed to get some questions answered you're both idiots ah but <laughs> for, for just, not a, felt... admitting you know but it, it's and, and there were so many little things throughout the book physical gestures clutching each other's hands squeezing each other's hands touching each other on the shoulder in in moments of vulnerability like that's what friends friends can do that i mean not really between dudes very often but yeah, but but it's so clearly marked as romantic in this book i don't know it, it could like up up until that scene for me and that like obviously i'm still sitting here hoping i've been shipping these two to use the the fandom lingo for a, a while now but it felt so final when she said it to me and like I said, even knowing that it very well still could happen in the future, and I know lots can change in that many books, the momentum was completely spiked for me. It's just the fact that it it felt right at the moment, and now no matter what happens, it doesn't. I don't. I don't. It, the momentum was destroyed for me, and I don't want to wait five or ten books to see it happen. <laughs> but at the same time, if it turns around and happens in the next book, then it kind of cheapens the gravity of the choices that I felt like Karen Murphy made here in this yeah, book. Definitely. Definitely. So I'm just, I'm torn. Like, I want it to happen, but I don't want Karen Murphy's just decisions to go boop, boop, back and forth like that. But the, I just, <laughs> I wanted it. I, I don't know. I wanted it so badly. <laughs> I, I thought, I thought I had, I thought it was the time. I thought it was the time. And then the rug was yanked under my foot and I, I was angry and I'm still angry. And That's I'm sure people are pulling me. their hair out listening to me talk about this right now. I'm sure future me is pulling his hair out <laughs> whenever I do go back and listen to the Inking Out Loud podcast episodes and I hear Ooh. myself say this. But yeah, I think, I think I'm think i done my character points. 
Unless you want to talk about Mouse as a character, or should we save him for just, like, miscellaneous? Because I'm sus. Well, I mean, we knew he was going to be, like, a magic dog from the very beginning. Right? What the hell is going on with that dog, though? Like, he's, a, he's like a mystical he a temple guardian. Kind of, like, the, the whole litter the, of yeah. dogs were, like, mystical temple guardians. Like, exactly. of course we're, he's going to be magic. We're a bunch of... Demon monkeys trying to do killing that litter of yeah. puppies in the beginning of book five. Like that's super. That is super sus right there. Yeah. Like I. But Harry just seems to be content. Like mm, that's that's very interesting. That is a shame that I'm not curious. More curious about that. Well, like, I think he was a little busy. <laughs> I guess Saint Elmo's fire. That was like Leonine was used to describe him not once but twice. Mm-hmm. That's cool to me. Yeah. Um, okay. All right. Uh, miscellaneous. Uh, I want to talk just very briefly about Father Forthill. Ooh, <laughs> uh, my man's a Scotch man. He he continues to be a good character. I yeah. As the series has gone on, I have been pleased with the representation of Catholicism, uh, which I was not sure I would be uh, after uh, the the first uh, after Grave Peril. Um, but Father Forthill is like in in my fairly fairly wide experience he's he's a lot like some of the the priests that uh we had you know local priests um he's he has that right attitude of listening and gentle counseling rather than you know trying to preach at you he's not like the, the fire and brimstone type of like rabid evangelization he's yeah. He doesn't pretend to be above human. Yeah. He's he's very open. Yeah. yeah. And and in in like I said, I've I've known a lot of priests over the years. Priests get, you know, moved around, they get reassigned uh fairly often. Um but he reminds me a lot of a, a few priests that we had come through Fort Collins over the years. Nice. Yeah. Nice. So I liked that. But uh but yeah, yeah. I think I think we can go into miscellaneous points now. Cool. So, I've solved the problem with Harry's car. Check this out, okay? Okay. You ready? This is dumb, but hear me out. Assuming money isn't too much of a factor, and I'm assuming by this point that Harry Dresden not being filthy damn rich is just a stylistic choice, and it's wearing thin for me. Because <laughs> Harry should invest some of his money, check this out, classic muscle car. Could you imagine <laughs> Harry Dresden rolling around like a late, a sweet late 60s Mustang? How cool would that be? <laughs> what, 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 what could happen to that car, really, besides, you know, physical damage, obviously? Harry's aura isn't going to break anything there, you know? Imagine it. It'd be good, right? I guess. It's no, not the kind like of thing it. that I think about. <laughs> no? I, I, I guess I'm deciding, like, book eight is where I've had enough. Harry Blackstone Copperfield Dresden is one of the most... Uh, Copperfield Blackstone or Black Blackfield Copperstone? I think it's the it's Blackfield Copperstone. He's one of the most powerful wizards Blackstone alive. Blackstone Copperfield. Blackstone Copperfield. Yeah. Thank you. He's named after David. Surely, he could live at least a more comfortable life. Why does Butcher need to keep Harry broke, AF, all the time? He doesn't need to cheat casinos or, or banks or whatever nefarious crap. And I'm sure he could get away with. But there are a thousand other ways in which he could use his power. I think and still legally acquire money. I'm sure. Just think about the lives you could save, Harry. It's a trope. If you start like. A private investigation agency or something. You just this is, I, this I'm is tired a of seeing him broke. The hardboiled detective. I just I'm tired of seeing him broke. I want to see him live a little. Put his feet up. Maybe get a proper night's sleep for once. You know that'd be cool. Hot showers. Those would be nice, right? Well, he can't do that because he breaks water heaters. 
Yeah, I know, but maybe, maybe, maybe if he had like a bigger house and he was farther away from the hot water tank, I don't know. I'm, I know I'm, I know I'm reaching here, but I also like the idea of Harry stepping out of like a nice Mustang boss with his whole getup. That's just that'd be cool, and it would be reliable. Okay, I can see him coming into some money in the future. I would love to see it happen. Some re- somebody rewards him for once for saving the world. How great would that be? Yeah. Okay, I'm done. We'll, Sorry, we'll go ahead. I'll, I, I have a few more, but I'll let you throw one at me first. Uh, I, I really few. only have um, one miscellaneous point, and it was just to express the extreme disbelief I had that a convention would stay open after murders happened at it. <laughs> I, I assume this is just like an investment thing, like millions of dollars are spent in making these events happen <laughs> it's like shows got to go while we got to make our money's back our money back with our event i don't know this is, I, this I, is the right. first I've, year I've, of a small home like homegrown con there you go like, see I, I have never been to a convention i have zero understanding of the culture so do like, not I, take what i'm saying i cannot imagine any circumstance in which a a vicious assault happens where like there are multiple serious injuries and a murder at a convention and everybody's just like oh yep we're gonna keep going yeah but what check out the programming tomorrow like (laughs) (laughs) what if it's a hard-boiled detective novels turned epic fantasy series that just needs it to happen well obviously (laughs) (laughs) yeah i know i'm just being facetious sorry but yeah no um uh yeah. That's Michael, Knight of the Cross. This is Harry to Merlin, who Merlin asks, Well, which sword? And then he hears Amarachius and he nod he like raises eyebrow and nods. And I stop right there to write down, Oh damn, you mean to say the blades are like all unique or something? Or is there something that sets Amarachius apart from the other two? What a brilliant setup that was. And then what a brilliant setup that was we for the reveal that we find out that yeah. Amarachius yeah. is Excalibur. <laughs> yeah, that's just uh it's good stuff. It's good stuff. Yeah. It was a it was a cool review. I'm super invested in the the knights, the knights and the denarians. Yeah, that plotline is very interesting to me. Uh, can't wait to see what happens with the sword in Harry's keeping. I still, I still have a, a sneaking suspicion that Harry's going to end up taking up that sword at some point. Yeah, but uh, but we'll see. Um, I. What about, uh, since we talked about the, the knights, how about the wardens? How about Morgan? Do you think of Morgan, dude? Uh, I mean, I, I thought the character development with Morgan in the last book was on point and, and yeah. it just continued here. Like, like Morgan didn't piss me off. Like, if anything, I almost Bel- like kind of liked him in this book. Yeah, that's why I asked with this, you know, grin on my face and, and I'm sure in my voice is because I was glad to see Morgan's hesitation there when he's given the order to kill mm-hmm. Molly. By the way, Merlin is now a bigger villain to me than Morgan ever was. I, I may be willing to come around on this guy after even after my previous ranting if he somehow continues to actually show some humanity in place of his like religion against Harry Dresden. Like the fact that he was hesitating and it was causing him visible anguish yeah. before the choice was taken away from him. Great start to that, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go ahead and say that it's way too telegraphed. The Merlin is not the traitor. It is way too uh, telegraphed right now, and I still think it's the gatekeeper. Kay. Speak, okay, my you, you just nailed my last point, Drew. In chapter six, there's a moment, ever so brief, 
where Harry mentions the gatekeeper to Bob, and Bob shivers. It's just two, it's just two words in between parts of Harry's continuing sentence. Bob shivered. It's so quick. It it just makes me want to know more about this gatekeeper. If he makes Bob shiver, that's some serious business right there. And it's like I was waiting to bring up the gatekeeper, and you just did. That was my last point. Thank you. So we have this whole conversation at uh-huh. the end of the book about like people being pieces on the board and and this grand plan and how he thinks Molly was maneuvered into being part of this and setting it off and I'm like dude you were maneuvered mm-hmm. you got a super cryptic letter from the gatekeeper on the down low the gatekeeper didn't want anybody else to know about this oh yeah I kind of forgot about that myself and it set the whole thing off like, good point. I feel pretty strongly after this book that, and and the fact that the gatekeeper was specifically not mentioned as one of the people who definitely knew about where the warden's camp was, I'm like he he knew. <laughs> the gatekeeper yeah. My- has his fingers in everything. <laughs> My phone keeps autocorrecting gatekeeper to beekeeper, and it's the <laughs> dumbest, most entertaining thing when I'm trying to write down notes about, like, the uh, the potential, like, meta story and everything that's really deep happening, and it's just a keeps writing down beekeeper, and it keeps making me giggle. Instead of the, like, deep purple hooded cloak, just, like, walking in and putting, like, a <laughs> exactly, beekeeper exactly. mask just on. Exactly, exactly. up and <laughs> the mask over the mesh and everything. Oh, it'd be great. <sighs> anyway, I, um, I think I'm ready for favorite scenes. Oh, I, 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 I'll... I have a slight problem with the fact that Michael apparently knew about Lashiel all along. Oh, I, I had such a big grin on my face with that. I, I really but liked that. Think, think, okay, so, unless I'm wrong, correct me if I'm wrong, think about what what happened logically here, is that um, we have to assume, I guess, that Michael, he said he saw Nicodemus throw the coin towards mm-hmm. his son, and I guess he sat still to witness Harry slap his hand down over that coin instead, because it seems like watching Nicodemus throw a a coin at your son, that's the kind of thing that gets you running out the door towards that child as quickly as possible, but he just witnessed Harry do that, so I guess he was just watching it happen, and then after witnessing Harry, like, condemn himself to a demon's influence to save his son, Michael spent the next two years pretending he he saw nothing, and didn't even bring it up to say thank you. Like, it just seems a little awkward to me. I didn't Am I misunderstanding anything? No? Yeah, I didn't have a problem with it. Uh, it I, could I be thought it was way in, too... in keeping with Michael's quiet steadiness that he's, you know, and, and so much of his ethos is about uh, the responsibility for redemption falling on the sinner, where it's like, we can't force you to repent. We can't force you to become a good person. You have to make that decision yourself. So I thought it made perfect sense that he would sit back and watch Harry. Mm. Uh, yeah, I guess this could just be coming from the fact that I also have extra context. I know that Harry's also like almost died three or four times since then. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, yeah, this guy saved your son and you know that he did that and consigned himself to that kind of fate. Maybe a thank you's in order before he gets himself killed and any of the next life-endangering events happen to him in the next few weeks. Because he, he, dude's, dude's always risking himself. I just feel like, it, I don't know. I was like, you knew this whole time? I felt like a little, what the hell, man? But that could just be me. I could be reading way too deeply into it or just over-examining things. I definitely am prone to do that. Yep. So, uh, I'm ready for favorite scenes. Yeah, let's, How about let's you? do it. 
Okay. All right. <laughs> I forgot to uh, to bring up my honorable mention would just be Lassiel's whole diatribe about her her origins. That was really cool. But my third favorite scene, um, Harry finally having enough of Molly's crap in chapter nine. This whole no attitude. The point, and I'm going to curse here again. Sit down, buckle the f up. That was pretty heavy and she deserved it like i could like just see her eyes go wide in that moment and it was kind of satisfying wasn't it to see harry finally snap at someone who's not gonna make his life hell for the crime <laughs> of speaking sense yeah you know yeah that was, it was just satisfying to see him be able to get somebody to say sit down young blood right <laughs> it was good nice. so chapter nine that was that scene that sit down that was good so my third favorite we've already talked about pretty extensively but it was harry and murphy in the elevator Mm. Uh, I thought that it was, was some... uh, one of many intensely powerful, intimate character moments in this book. Yeah, I was I was at work listening to that, and I found it hard to focus on the welding I was doing because that was very very tense. That scene, yeah. it was very uh, very well written. That one. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Number two. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Harry absolutely destroying that screaming banshee thing with hellfire oh in the and, in the hallway yeah and it's scary that that harry manages to lose control like this and also as an aside i actually love this method of making harry hurt you know losing himself in anger and righteous wrath until he loses another one like great personal conflict material there but as an aside the reason that i just I, this is my number two and i hate to admit it the main reason it's there on my list is because it's just so cool <laughs> on cool factor alone harry stomping that murderous son of a bitch like that like like a cockroach that it was was just kind of fun in a disturbing <laughs> way it was a lot of fun it just i love seeing harry get to let loose like that there you go <laughs> yeah but it's also great personal conflict material so i had you know it's, it's good stuff sure that's my second favorite so my second favorite was charity finally opening up to harry yep yeah again there's there's a, a running theme with my favorite scenes in this book. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm I'm really glad you said that because my favorite scene is a toss up between that scene and another scene with Charity. Okay. Uh, like she's been a character I complained about. I said that before, you know, but she still always tends to find a way to feature in my favorite scenes. Charity does. I could I couldn't decide if I wanted to say that my favorite scene was this conversation that you're talking about with Harry, where she comes clean about her about her past, um, or this one special moment deep inside Arctus Tor on that staircase, as Ch Charity, you know, weighed down and exhausted in her armor, hearing her daughter screaming, just kept on panting, "I'm coming, baby, I'm coming," you know. That was. That was inspiring. Like I'm, I'm getting tears in my eye, in my <laughs> eyes right now as I, as I talk about it. That, that moment of cheer that I had for Charity as a character was brilliant. It was, it was, it was inspiring. It was so inspiring. So I, I'm choosing Charity herself as my favorite scene because she was on <laughs> full display as a character in this book. Okay. Nice. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I love it when when characters get added depth like this, you know, it's, that yeah. it just makes the story so much more interesting to me when, when I can care about something with the characters and, and not just feel like I'm being dragged along for the sake of plot resolution. So, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Your favorite. Dude. Yeah. My favorite 
Harry and Molly take a walk. Mm, it explains to her the danger. And and once again, my favorite scene in a book is a soul gaze. This is a, another ongoing theme in the series. I think the soul gaze is probably the smartest thing Butcher has done in this series. Uh, I think it's where he's done most of his best writing. Uh, I, I really appreciate how different each soul gaze is. And I appreciate how he makes sure that it's not just an info dump. That it means something to both the character that Harry's soul gazing with and to Harry himself. Uh, it's such a good narrative device. And, and I think he, he knocked it out of the park with this one. This is probably my favorite soul gaze so far. Like, even better than yeah. the Thomas one, which I really, really liked. Yeah. Some 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 great scenes to choose from in this yeah. book. I did have trouble actually, you know, making my choices. Yeah, no, I I really <laughs> had to work to whittle it down to three. Like there were there were a lot of scenes. Honestly, the that ending scene, the whole ending sequence, Michael and and Harry in the car, uh, everything with Harry and Molly, um, with with him like kind of laying down the ground rules with her, and and then taking her home. Uh, those were both high up on the list like uh yeah there there's just a lot a lot in this book that i enjoyed so i think mm -hmm. i've talked myself Same. into this is my favorite book in the series so far i'll still say there's nothing quite as cool i've seen yet as zombie t-rex or or, or <laughs> tyrannosaurus bob or a bunch of other things that we got in the last book but uh the yeah and butters i loved butters but the character work on on the part of molly and especially for me charity well i resonated a lot with molly yeah, yeah. molly and charonated it i can't speak <laughs> i resonated a lot with molly and charity inspired me so much uh -huh. that in terms of character work i have to think that this book is the better book but still my favorite seven just, yeah can't beat tyrannosaurus bob right. i i i dare the next dozen books to try and beat tyrannosaurus bob it doesn't do it i guarantee <laughs> <laughs> nice so uh, yeah, so shall we do a little final draft here? Yeah, let's do a little one. Yeah, sure. So I started, as everyone can probably tell, as I have been lately drinking a coffee. Once again, surprise, surprise, I'm drinking a Timmy's. This is a Timmy's brand, just Keurig cup. Uh, French vanilla flavor, really nice. Very, very nice. And of course, since it was a 12-ounce serving, I am wired. I suppose it would have the same amount of ca <laughs> caffeine, actually, anyway, as it would in the tent, just far more diluted but yeah it was a uh, great coffee great coffee a little too late to drink it i'm gonna regret it um <laughs> no you know what no i'm not i'm gonna do extra homework tonight to make up for it but it was a great coffee i just all right go for the alternative i guess good stuff so what are you drinking what are you sipping on so i am drinking a sour ale from anchorage brewing company Ooh, sour i never liked those uh this is a beer fermented and aged in Missouri oak barrels and finished on Alaskan Haskap berries. I have no idea what, you know, what these berries are. I've never heard of they them They sound before. delicious though. I want to eat those berries now. Uh, but they're, they're tasty. They're at least just from drinking the beer. It, it almost comes across like a blend between like a, like a blend between like cherries and black currants. Oh, 
Mm. I haven't had black currant in so long. Yeah, I I really like this beer. It is quite sour. Something that, something that a lot of Canadians are into, especially farther north, the black currant. Yeah, yeah. I know it's a big thing in uh, in Britain. Uh, like I, I used to, at, at a previous job, we were out in London every winter for tech conferences, and mm. like, everything was black currant out there. <laughs> <laughs> But, but yeah, I like Nothing this beer quite a lot though. Uh, it's yeah, really enjoyable. Seven percent ABV, so not a monster like some of the other beers I brought on. But uh, I think this one is is pretty thematically appropriate. It is called simply Scream. Oh, nice, very nice. Yeah, been sitting on this guy for a while, being like, "There's got to be a book, you know, this works for." And then this book's all about people getting afraid and yeah running screaming <laughs> so. yeah yeah the horror movie aspect was pretty cool i'm a big fan of horror movies myself not really classic i'm more of a fan of like more contemporary like modern horror but i'm i am a huge fan there are some horror directors that i would be kind of like starstruck to meet hmm. myself uh did you get a crack out of knockoff chucky i did and i i at one point i thought i swear i realized when we first saw the uh, the Phasmophage, you can tell I've been playing a whole lot of video games. The Phobophage, that was a scarecrow. It described the head that it had, that, like the pumpkin. I thought it was pumpkin head. Mm. Like the actual 1988 horror, like low budget horror film. Like, well, not that low budget. Pumpkin head. But he just kept calling it the scarecrow, the scarecrow, the scarecrow. And I was like, okay, it's just a scarecrow then. And I guess scarecrows do have pumpkins for heads in a lot of the ways. Like, mm -hmm. I was picturing pumpkin head and it was scarier for it because I was like <laughs> seven when I saw pumpkin head and it's... Still keeps me awake. Oof. Yeah. But Chucky kind of gave me a laugh, yeah. Yeah, it did. Bucky. The overalls killed me. I was like, come on. Bucky the murderous doll, or whatever you call it. And the xenomorph, the alien. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's good stuff. Yeah. So, unless you have any final points, I think that uh, brings us to the end. No. No, we're just heading into book nine of Dresden, and I'm still pretty stoked. I mean, although, <laughs> I came close. I was so furious when we didn't get Harry and Murphy, but... <laughs> It was a, it was an explosive ending for me. It's number two out of the seven that we've covered so far, in my opinion. Yeah. Um. So yeah, that brings us Eight. to the end. I say seven. Sorry. And yeah. uh, this is uh, this will be either episode one thirty eight or one thirty nine. Um. Uh, the spreadsheet says one thirty nine, but it could. Yeah, it, it's it'll up for... depend on on what we end up doing with some of these uh, uh Star Wars episodes that we're going to be interspersing here, uh, whether we do them back to back or. Or split them up but if we split them up then the next episode will be covering the back to war book four of the x-wing series if not then the next episode will be straight on into white knight so uh stay tuned in fact you'll you'll know <laughs> by the time you're listening to this yeah you know right now we don't even yeah. know right now look at that but uh but yeah as as always if you want to support us as rob said at the top of the show check us out on patreon or coffee uh, that support means a lot to us. It's what allows us to continue making these episodes and, and improving quality. And uh, as as we just had for the first time, uh, starting to bring authors on as guests. So, mm -hmm. yeah, consider supporting us there. I also wanted to really quickly tease that next month for October is going to be my month for the Patreon writing piece. Mm. And I have big plans for that one. It's going to be the longest thing I've done yet by quite a bit. Ooh. And I have it planned out and I've already actually started it for once. I've got, I'm actually ahead. Nice. It's going to be a, a neat little horror short story. Ooh. We'll see how, uh, it's actually it's, a good it's so reminder. far turning out. 
Uh, I need yeah, to it's post. Yeah, out to be a lot of fun. I need to post my September um, short story, which I'm I'm yeah. pretty excited about myself. So, yeah. So for October, Rob's going to have a horror short story for the first time, and it's going to be it's the it's the biggest thing I think I'm going to finish writing so far in my life. So Heck yeah, we'll see how it goes. I like it. Well, as always, I've been your host Drew McCaffrey, and with me is my co-host Rob Santos. Yep. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Bye, everyone.